Welcome back to Change Cultivators, the place that we exist for one promise to you, to make you a better leader in times of disruption and change. For today, I would emphasize that word leader because we have a chance to talk to Jamie Turner. Jamie's a marketer, an entrepreneur, an author, a professor, a sought-out speaker across the globe, a, a commentator on, on different newscasts and in general, and all-around super smart and super great guy. He's appeared on CNN, he appears on Headline News, he comments on a lot of things all related to business and leadership and marketing and has written a number of books. And we get a chance to spend the next chunk of time picking Jamie's brain about some things he's passionate about, all connecting the dots to how to be a better leader in times of change. So Jamie, welcome and tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. Patrick, great to be here. First of all, I love the intro. Very wonderful. You know, the way, the style you did it. I am actually, anytime I enter into a room where I have family members who really know the real me, I'm going to have you make my introduction. <laughs> Pleasure. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Jamie Turner. He's here now. <laughs> no, it's great to see you again. Yeah, no, I I have had the opportunity to do a lot of different work for a lot of different brands, whether it's Coca-Cola, Verizon, AT&T, a lot of different things. And I've learned a few things along the way, mostly by making mistakes. And as you know all too well, and we all know everybody listening on this, you learn more from your mistakes than you do from your successes. And so I've stubbed my toe plenty of times, but the secret, of course, is to dust yourself off and, and kind of pick yourself back up and move on. And uh, through the course of that, have just collected a lot of, you know, little tips, techniques, and tools that you can use in order to avoid the landmines as you go through your career. Landmines are out there no matter what job you have, no matter what level of your career you're at. And when you step on a landmine, what happens is, is uh, it takes attention away from all the hard work that you've done on the successes you've had. So I go travel the globe right now doing workshops and keynotes on Here's how to avoid the landmines. Here's how to lead yourself better. And here's how to lead teams better so that you can shine a light on your successes rather than shining a light on your failures. And so that's what I get to do. And it's a blast. Which is why I was so excited to get, invite you on and, and so tickled that you agreed to come on. Because I know in our conversations, and you and I have cracked eggs a couple of times of sitting across a, a diner table and chatted about a few things. But I know recently you've pushed out another ebook, right? So you crank out these great thought leadership things around the unspoken rules of leadership. And I'm intrigued by the title. I think our listeners will be intrigued by the title as well. What was your motivation for penning this particular piece? What was the need that you were trying to tap into? Yeah, you know, part of the reason I call it the unspoken rules of leadership is because it's the kind of thing that you won't find in a regular textbook or even in a regular book at a bookstore. These are the tips and techniques that you learn, like I said, the hard way. And so you go through your life, you have these experiences and you go, man, I, you know, I'm, I've learned how not to make that mistake. Let me share those with other people. And what ended up happening, what was kind of interesting about it is the very first time I gave this speech, so I collected all these ideas. And now when I do eight hour workshops on this, they're not all eight hours, but, but I've got 200 of these tips. But the very first time I did it, I had like 30 tips, techniques to use, like one of them being work on your mindset first and your skill set second. And that's a counterintuitive idea. Most people, most leaders are like, I got to work on my skills. But the truth is, is that you have to work on your mindset first and your skill set second. So I gave the speech the very first time. That was one of the 30 I gave. I came off the stage. Somebody came up afterwards. They said, that was a great speech. Learned a lot. I was thinking you were going to show a framework 
And I thought, you know, that's a pretty damn good idea, a framework of how to categorize these things. So I literally went out to a restaurant for lunch, got a napkin. It was the classic thing. Started sketching out a framework for how these tips can be put together. And the framework, everybody who's listening to this knows a two by two. It's just a, a, a normal framework that you would do. And on the left-hand side of it are tips that you would do one-to-one. -one. On the right-hand side of it are things that you would do one-to-many. At the bottom are things that you do inward. These are things you tell yourself. And at the top are things that you do outward, things you tell others. Now, when it all plays out, it brings up four quadrants. And the first quadrant is mindset. The second quadrant is mentoring, what you would tell others, somebody one-on-one. -on -one. The third quadrant is management. How do you talk to your teams? And the fourth quadrant is marketing. How do you talk to your entire company or to your customers? And so it's worked out great because it gives everybody who hears these kind of tips a way to categorize them and drop them into buckets so that you can sort through them. Mindset, mentoring, management, and then marketing. And it's worked out really, really well for everybody. So let's dig into mindset because uh, you're right. We, we on this podcast get to talk to a lot of leaders and we actually hear not maybe that word, but the notion of really being thoughtful and and purposeful in not your skills, but in kind of how you're going to approach that. So talk a little bit to our listeners about why mindset is the first one is kind of a fun, what I hear you say is kind of a foundational one and what it really means to say, get your mindset right, really understand that. Yeah. So we all grow up in our careers going, okay, I got to learn Excel. Now I have to learn Salesforce. Now I have to learn this, that, and the other thing. And that's fine. You do have to learn those things. But the truth is, is that what we think leads to our actions and our actions lead to our outcomes. And if you understand that sort of connection, what we think leads to our actions, our actions lead to our outcomes. You realize that the starting point for good outcomes are good thoughts. And so you have to train your brain to think good thoughts and proper thoughts and to analyze things appropriately. Because a lot of times we all get swept up in emotion or we have baggage that we're carrying around or whatever it is. And our thoughts can get us going off down the wrong you know, road. And then that leads to bad actions, which leads to bad outcomes. And so one of the things I always say to people is work on your mindset first, sit down. And it goes from everything from learning how to meditate, which by the way, I learned because I have ADHD and I'm bouncing off the walls. And I, I literally went into a doctor once and said, Hey, can you get me on some medicine for my ADHD? The doctor was a pretty enlightened person said, you know, I can put you on medication, but have you ever tried meditation? And I said, no, let, I'm, well, actually I said, yes, I've been meditating, but let me sit down and really do it deeply. Like the doctor was saying twice a day for 25 minutes at a time. Now, everybody listening to this is going, I don't have time to sit down twice a day for 25 minutes or even 15 minutes twice a day. But if it changed your life and if it got you so that you have more focus and so that you were able to get more done by doing 15 minutes twice a day, you would start doing it tomorrow. And so one of the things I teach people is how to meditate, how to use meditation to control ADHD or ADD, how to use meditation to reduce stress, how to use meditation to focus more, and how to use meditation to 
change your life because I literally, my life changed when I started meditating twice a day, which was in my mid thirties and everything went off from there. So coming full circle, Patrick, to your original question, you know, why work on mindset first? And it goes through action, thoughts lead to actions, actions lead to outcomes all the way over to here's how to meditate so that you can calm yourself down and focus and be in the moment instead of being influenced by the moment. I love it because I want to explore it in the context of leading in a disruptive or rapidly transforming environment. Yeah. So in, in, our, in our consulting practice, we do a lot of transformation work and leaders are operators in a lot of cases, right? Their skills, I think, as you would just say it, bring them into the operational management or operational leadership when dealing in times of disruption and having to lead transformative change mm -hmm. is a different type of leadership skill. So how do you do, how do you, if you do, connect mindset as kind of one of your core leadership unknown areas to kind of explore to this notion of you're not leading in static environments, you're leading in dynamic environments. I love that question. First of all, that I'm not blowing smoke. That's a great question. It's a smart question too. Let me give you an example of how that relates to leadership. So essentially I'll distill down the idea you're playing with there, which is a great one, which is, Hey, things are chaotic in business. Things are urgent and important most of the time. And how do we live? How do you tell a leader to live in a world of, you know, low stress, peace, thoughtfulness when the world around them is kind of going crazy? Here's a great story or an example of that. When they listen to recordings, and this is a little bit of a tragic story, but when they listen to recordings of airline pilots who are, you know, going down and crashing into the side of a mountain you hear them and their voices are perfectly calm. And the reason is, is because they've been trained to keep emotion out of their decision-making. Because when you are flying a 737 into the side of a mountain, you have to remain calm in order for your brain to work flawlessly so that you can avoid the tragedy. And so you listen to these cockpit recordings and they're like, Yes, we're, you know, diving at 10,000 feet per minute, all this sort of stuff. And they're just flatlined, just very, very monotone. And the reason is, is because they've been trained as fighter pilots a lot of times or in the Air Force or wherever they've been trained, remain calm. The same holds true with, you'll hear police and emergency technicians do the same thing, very, very calm, because they've been trained. The calmer you are, the better your decision making. So that's the answer to your question. Yes, there's chaos going on around you. There's dynamic change going on around you. That's going to happen. Your job is to remove yourself from that, stay engaged, but remove yourself, step back a little bit so that you can be thoughtful in how you approach things and make decisions logically, not make decisions emotionally. I, I love the analogy to, to pilots and, you know, they're put in really stressful environments and they're most of the time it's a fairly routine environment until it's not. Right. Until, yeah. <laughs> until all of a sudden it's not routine. And that's when this mindful training comes in to say, no, 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 this is how you respond to those. And I do think as business leaders who the core of our audience are as business leaders, you have a tendency to say, well, in times of higher stress, heightened stress, which are times of disruption, and you got to lead through change. The tendency is just to go plow through it and kind of drive. And what I hear you saying is, Yes, and potentially make sure that you're being much more mindful about how you want to approach it. 
Is that fair? I don't want to misinterpret what you're what you're kind of. No, no, no. Out. That's a that's a good summation. It actually leads to one of the other tips in in the unspoken rules of leadership, which is we are taught, uh, particularly in the West, to that great leaders have drive, ambition, you know, motivation, grit, all of these things. And while that is true, the latest studies are showing that the most successful leaders also have a high degree of humility because humility brings that level of sort of uh, that dispassionate decision-making into play. You start a meeting with listening to other people first before making decisions. You take ego out of the equation. So your decisions are the right decisions instead of decisions that reflect positively on just you. All of these things happen. And so there's new research that's coming out saying a secret weapon for great leaders is humility. I had two bosses who were always the smartest people in the room, great people, and they were the most humble. Did they ever sit at the head of the table the way most leaders do? No, they sat on the side of the table with everybody else. And they were very, very good at listening first analyzing a situation and making a decision. And they always made the right, you know, most of the time made the right decision. And, and it was because they led with humility. So coming full circle to what you were saying, Patrick, yeah, you know, we're trained, we're taught grit, drive, you know, pushiness, arrogance leads to success. Actually, the latest research is showing that humility leads to more success than arrogance and aggressiveness. So uh, a, a sidebar comment, and then I'll come back to something I wanted to build on there. So if you have kind of links to this research that you think would be cool, let us know. We'll put it in the show notes for our listeners, because I think it's always good to kind of go back to the, the the core of really understanding. And it's not just you making stuff up. It's you basing things on, you know, legitimate and ongoing research that's actually proving out traits of leadership. So a little heads up to the listeners that we'll drop some research. If Jamie has it in any directions that he thinks as kind of of requested readings if you want to dig deeper into the topic. You're also making me think of a recent podcast discussion we had with the CEO of Vodafone. And he told the story when he was made CEO of that role. And again, obviously a very accomplished individual, you know, huge amounts of chops. And he he said, he, he, he candidly told us on the podcast and listeners can go back and listen to it. And he said, you know, when I first got the role, I kind of felt like a fraud, like, like I, I'm, I, I'm not ready to do this. Right. And he goes, it wasn't until he went to a conference of other global CEOs and started talking to them. And they were all like, yeah, we are. We're all humble enough to know that, right? Like we're 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 all we're all kind of a little bit of a fraud. And he said it was so freeing. And his approach to leadership is very consistent with what you're talking about. You know, he talks about you know driving change through fellowship, and he uses terms that are not necessarily the normal words that a leader in our. I love the way you make it Western, our Western notion of you know command and control leadership, et cetera. And so it's a little bit different style, and I I think that's consistent with what you're talking about in this quadrant. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm glad to see that that it's starting to trickle into even the highest level people who've had long and illustrious careers are starting to say, you know what, we need to be more humble. I know early in my career, it was back in the days where that arrogance was just considered that, hey, the top person's always going to be, you know, a little bit of a, of, a, of a jerk. And I think part of what's driving humility nowadays is not only that people are seeing that it makes you more successful, but also, quite frankly, social media. If you are a jerk as a CEO of a large corporation, you're going to get outed on social media. And I'm not a huge, even though my first book was on social media, not a huge fan of social media, but I am a fan of transparency. And I think that's what social media brings to the table is, hey, guess what? If you're a jerk to people, others are going to find out about it and they're not going to want to work with you. So now 
top C-level executives are like, nope, it's not only brains, it's not only drive and ambition, it's also humility and kindness that are going to get me to the top. Cool. So I love these four pillars that you have and kind of arrayed them into into a structured way to have all of these tips and and these unspoken rules. You had a comment in the in 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 the new ebook, the unspoken rules of leadership, and it was a leader needs to understand their first line of code. Like you need to do that. And so I thought it was an interesting analogy and kind of popped to me as I was going through. What do you mean by that? And how does that connect with the the pillars? And how does that connect with some of these unspoken rules? Yeah. If any software program, you can have the most brilliantly written software code with millions of lines of code in it. And that software will not run properly if the first line of code is errant. And so the idea that so many people, when they move through the world, have a first line of code that says, nobody likes me, or I'm a fraud, you know, and even though we just talked about that being sort of a path towards humility, if it comes on too strong, it can can really damage you. Or, you know, people don't trust me, or I'm going to get burned on everything I do. You know, I have a friend, unfortunately, whose first line of code is I don't trust people. And I have another friend whose first line of code is I'm not good enough. And the result is, is they move through their lives with that first line of code. The rest of the code in their brain is brilliant. Both those people, but they can't get past that first line of code. So they aren't as successful as they would want to be because that first line of code is broken and it sort of messes up the rest of their life. So I'm always saying, work on your very first line of code, figure out what it is that you're telling yourself. And these are the things that go back to our childhood. Hey, you know, I always felt like I was a loser when I was a kid in middle school. You can address that and own it and then say, all right, I'm going to work my way out of that. And I'm not kidding you. This is the weirdest thing, but your brain... (laughs) This is my theory, that the brain doesn't know the difference between truth or fiction. So if you tell your brain enough times something, it starts believing it. So that leads to the next thing, which is affirmations. When you start your morning with affirmations, I, I am, and then you fill in the blank. I go back to my affirmations, true story. 15 years ago, I was just an employee at a company. And I wrote out all my affirmations and it started with, I am an international speaker who travels the globe speaking about leadership. And I am an author of several books, all of this stuff. And I started just saying it to myself. And what happens is, is when you tell yourself those things and it has to be in the present tense, what happens is you're at a cocktail party and your brain is saying, I'm an international speaker. And you bump into somebody from Cape Town, South Africa, and you go, Hey, by the way, I speak internationally. Uh, by the way, you're not lying. You're just saying, hey, you know, I, I speak domestically and I want to speak internationally. Maybe you and I can work something out where I can come down to South Africa to speak at your organization. Your brain behaves differently because you've told it these things. And the result is, is that when you see opportunities, you enter into those opportunities slightly differently. Whereas if you weren't telling your brain, I'm an international speaker, you meet somebody from South Africa and you say, oh, tell me about South Africa, which is a great question, by the way. But you just go, oh, you know, and you have that conversation instead of the conversation about that leads to speaking. So it's not lying to yourself. It's saying I am and then filling in the blank with your aspirational self that you know you can accomplish, that you know you can be, and telling your brain, I am that thing already. 
And when you tell your brain that enough times, you start behaving that way. And like we said before, thoughts lead to actions, actions lead to outcomes, and all of a sudden it all ties together. So that's the, that's the whole full circle of first line of code has to be right. And then you have to use affirmations to tell yourself what you aspire to be in the present tense. And then it all starts playing out and it all starts happening for you. It's really an interesting dynamic, but it works every time. I love it. So to recap for our, our listeners, right? So four pillars are organizing these unspoken rules. We have mindset, mentoring, management, and marketing. I want to jump over to management, right? So mm -hmm. this is, as I understand you, the way you think about this framework, this is kind of the one to many, and this is really leadership communications, right? This is driving a team. So what are one or two things from the management quadrant in this framework that you think would be interesting for somebody who is leading a team in times of disruption and change? Yeah, that's a great question. First of all, it's understanding how to get inside the mind of the people that you are managing. The starting point for any good manager is to understand the motivations of the people you're managing and working with them so that what you need from them is mutually beneficial back to them. So in other words, I had a friend who was in, in at Accenture for a job interview. And he was asked in the job interview, hey, you know, what do you want to be doing in five years? And, you know, my friend thought, well, I can do the standard answer, which is I want to work my way up the chain of command and run this company someday. And he said, you know what? I want to be retired in Mallorca in five years. <laughs> and the, the guy interviewing him did something great. He said, let's make that happen. That's great management because the guy interviewing him knew I am going to make that happen in your life because I know that if I accommodate you on your needs and your desires and what you want to go, you will work hard for us. So it's a win-win scenario. So the number one thing you do as a manager, get inside the mind of the people you're managing, understand their motivations, and then work in a win-win environment and say, yeah, we can make that happen. We can make what you want to do and live in Mallorca happen with what we need you to do over the next five years, which is work really hard for us and deliver the goods. And if that happens then we'll get you into Mallorca. So it's a win-win scenario. So that's the that's the starting point for all good management. Cool. So I'm going to come, going to come to a screeching halt that I'm going to throw out Earth, Wind & Fire. And our <laughs> listeners have no idea why I'm doing that, but Jamie's actually going to make sense of that. So tell me why Earth, Wind & Fire, who I will agree with you when you stated this in the book, is one of the greatest bands of all time. Tell me why Earth, Wind & Fire makes an appearance in your unspoken rules. Yeah. So I love musician autobiographies. And, and Maurice White was the founder of Earth, Wind & Fire. And uh, he wrote a great autobiography, very smart guy. And he actually, in the autobiography, there were two Earth, Winds and, Earth Wind & Fires. The, the very first one, and then the second one that we all know that became one of the great bands of the 1970s and 1980s. But with the first one, he sat down and he said, I had really talented musicians I was working with. They were great. But I realized their complaint to action ratio was out of whack. And that raises the question, what is a complaint to action ratio? And Maurice White said, they complained a lot and took very little action on those complaints. And I realized that got them stuck in the mud and that they were never going to accomplish what they could because their complaint to action ratio was out of whack. So I went and fired the band and hired a new group and that had an appropriate complaint to action ratio. We all have to complain. We all have to get things off our chest. 
but you should have one complaint for every 10 things you do that take action towards improving your life around you. So he went from the reverse, which was a lot of complaining, very little action to little bit of complaining and a lot of action and the rest is history. That's how we got Earth, Wind and Fire, the one that we all know and love because he fired that first band because they had a wrong complaint to action ratio. When I've run workshops before and it seems to be going off the rails, I will actually stop on this particular topic if I sense it. And I will literally look at the team and say, yes, yeah, sound like a bunch of whiners. And, yeah. and, and and it's not a word that gets used in business facilitation often. Right. And people will look at you. I said, well, look, uh, yes, boo-hoo. The world is hard. Disruption is happening. Change is occurring, et cetera, and so on. Fine. Complain about it. But what are you going to do? And I, you've simplified it so much to me the way you just said that. Fine. Complain. It's cool. Get over it. Take action. And, you know, that's a sign of true leadership in times of disruption is understanding having the human emotion that it's annoying and complain about it, but then move on. I, li I liken that back to your analogy earlier of first responders and or, you know, airline pilots, et cetera. That is not a time to be complaining, right? Yeah. When, some, yeah. when something bad is occurring in those worlds, it's not time to complain about, oh, that sucks that that part broke. It's like, no, no, no. It is time for structured action. And I think this, it, that ratio that you're talking about is really, really compelling. Yeah, it it really is is a good idea. And and again, that book was filled with a lot of great wisdom. And I can't remember the exact title of it, but it's Maurice White's autobiography. But man, what a great band, what a great thought leader that Maurice White was. And here we are, you know, years after his death, and we're still talking about not only the music, but also his management style, which is kind of interesting. It's really cool. So I'm going to take a step over to another part of what I found found interesting, this notion of comfort and discomfort, right? So we talk about a lot of that in change transformation work. And there's a Simon Sinek quote that I use a lot in workshops, which is, you know, people aren't afraid of change. They're just comfortable with the status quo, right? And so the status quo makes people comfortable and any disruption to the status quo, quo makes them feel uncomfortable. So you have a way you were thinking about kind of comfort and discomfort and how that might expand your view of the world and shrink your view of the world that I think our listeners would find interesting. Yeah. So it's an interesting story. My, my sister was the one who actually gave me that idea. And when she said it to me, I was like, that's brilliant, Ashley. I got I to gotta drop that into my unspoken rules of leadership. And basically what it is, Ashley has a very dear friend who's done very well for himself. He lives in a high rise apartment and she goes over and visits him every once in a while. And, and she says, Hey, I'm going to come by and uh, let's go get some dinner. And, and he's like, that's great, but I want to, I only want to eat at the Chinese restaurant. And she's like, why? And he says, well, because I know what's on the menu. Well, I know you know what's on the menu, but let's go to some other restaurant. No, 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 no I want to eat at the Chinese restaurant. She's like, fine. Okay. We'll eat at the Chinese restaurant. He then, he, he says, and we have to meet for dinner at 4 PM. And she's like, why? And he says, because we'll avoid the crowds and then I can get my table that I always like because nobody's sitting there at 4 p.m. in the <laughs> afternoon. And she realized that as his success has increased, his world has shrunk because he's moving towards comfort. So the idea is when you move towards comfort, your world shrinks. And when you move towards discomfort, your world expands. Now, everybody listening to this podcast right now knows that when somebody comes in and says, we're going to change a few things here, or we're going to make an all, we're going to go down a different path over there, whatever it is, that makes us feel uncomfortable. But everybody who's listening to this right now knows 
that when you have gone through mild discomfort, at the end of that mild discomfort is a new experience, a new world, a new way of doing things. And so a great parallel is, hey, I don't like to travel outside the United States because I'm comfortable with the United States. You'll go overseas and you'll have an experience that's mildly uncomfortable getting over there and being over there and the nervousness about passports and all that sort of stuff. But I guarantee you, you'll come back going, oh my God, I can't wait to get back to Europe or wherever you're going in the world. So move towards discomfort. Mild discomfort is a good thing. Stick with it, get to the other side, because once you get through whatever the discomfort is, you'll be in a better place to be a better leader of others and a better leader of yourself. So a slight tangent warning to you. I have a theory that I've been operating on a little bit that all of the disruption centered on COVID and lockdowns and, and that has been in some ways, right? It's clearly, I'm not saying COVID is a positive, but for a certain leadership, it broke them out of old patterns and it actually might be helping leaders be more embracing of discomfort going forward. I don't know if you've seen that and I'm curious what your reaction to that thought is. Totally agree. When... One of the things I do in the workshops is I break neural pathways. So what do I mean by that? All of us get in a rut and we solve new problems the same old way. Why? Because our brain wants to be efficient in its problem solving. So the older we get, and this is a problem, the older we get, the more we go down the same old paths of solving problems until we disrupt those paths. And it's hard to disrupt neural pathways because it's comfortable, it's ingrained, all of those things. But you literally have to physically disrupt your brain patterns so that it opens your mind up to new ways of doing things. So what you're always trying to do is introduce new ways of doing things and change things up because you will perform at your peak when there's new stimuli going on. So Patrick, your question was basically, hey, maybe there's a silver lining to COVID. And I 100% agree with you. And the reason is, is because it shook things up and it got people to look at things from a different angle. Quick story on that. Artists, the great artists of the 17th, 18th, 19th century, when they would paint a painting, what they would do when they were halfway through the painting and they were kind of getting in a rut and they were a little stuck on the painting, they'd take it and they'd turn the painting upside down and look at it upside down. Why? Because it broke the neural pathways in their brain of just being used to looking at this painting that they'd been looking at for hours and hours and days and days. And they would see things fresh and they go, oh, that mountain I'm painting is all wrong. And then they flip the painting back over and fix it. So what I'm encouraging people to do is turn your paintings upside down, turn your world upside down and look at things from a fresh angle. And when you do that, you will end up finding new solutions to problems that you were in a rut over. And so it's a great way to kind of explore new things. So I totally agree with you, Patrick. COVID, there is a silver lining to it. And, and the silver lining is that it got us to disrupt the way we do things. Love it. You and I could go on forever. How can our listeners track with you? What other things, resources from your end would you have them point to just to make sure that we kind of open up a connection because there's so much rich, richness that we can continue to dive into, but where might they go to find out more, see your other books, et cetera, and so on? Yeah. 
Thanks for asking. First of all, this is all going to be in a book in a couple of years. I got a, one book coming out to be published by McGraw-Hill this September. And then the book after that is going to be an expanded version of the unspoken rules of leadership. But if you want to learn more about me, just go in and Google Jamie Turner and I'll be on the first page all over J-A-M-I-E and then Turner. Or if you want to go to jamieturner.live, then you can go there, find out about me and all the workshops I do about leadership persuasion and marketing. And then finally, in the show notes will be a link to jamieturner.live slash download. And that is where you can download the unspoken rules of leadership. So that's the best way to get in touch with me. Happy to chat with anybody about anything. I love this stuff. And Patrick, you run a great podcast and I am not kidding you. I know we're old friends, but you ask really smart questions. You do your homework too, because you've read that ebook. And I'm like, oh, he didn't just look at the cover. He like <laughs> dove into this thing and has notes and all that. And so I appreciate the homework you did and also the questions you asked. And same with your team, Gareth and Wesley, who are behind the scenes doing a lot of the hard work. So appreciate it. Well, we are so delighted you took some time out of your busy day to kind of spend time with us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your wisdom with our listeners. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. 